Earlier this week, I asked my kids if we can be commanded or directed to love. Uh, Can we be commanded to love someone? Their answer surprised me. Yes, they said. Really? I asked. Why, Why can we be commanded to love someone? And what does that tell us about love? I asked. I'm guessing that the most predominant understanding of love in our society would tell us that the notion uh, of commanding or demanding love is ridiculous. You can't tell me who to love. You can't tell me how to love. My love is my love. I get to decide who I will love and how I will love. Isn't that the consensus of our culture? But... What if love could be commanded, demanded? What would be necessary for that to be the case? Maybe we would have to reconsider our presupposition that we are the highest authority when it comes to our love. Maybe we would have to reconsider the very nature of love itself. Maybe love originated with someone other than us. What if There is a God who created us in love. What if He created love? What if He made us to love? What if He knew who we should love? As the author of our lives and the author of love, wouldn't He have the authority to tell us who we should love and how? We should love. Wouldn't this tell us that love is not merely a feeling or an emotion, but also an allegiance, a commitment, and a conscious choice? Indeed, there is a God who made us in love. He is the only God, and He does command us to love Him. He always has. And what is Perhaps most surprising about this is that his command to love him is actually an expression of his love for us. As he calls us to the best and highest love. This morning, as we turn to study Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 1 to 25, we turn to consider one of the most surprising and I think confrontational commands of God in the whole of the Bible. Through Moses... God commands His people to love Him. And it's my prayer that as we hear God's Word this morning, we would respond with loving obedience. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 151. And while you're turning there, let me just remind us of the context of the text that we're studying together this morning. Where does this passage come up? Well, Deuteronomy is comprised of three speeches from Moses. These three speeches are given to the people of Israel as they're preparing to enter the promised land of Canaan. These are Moses' parting words to the people of Israel, the people that he has loved and led for 40 years. Through these three speeches, Moses wants to communicate one simple truth. God loves his children, and his children are to love him. That's the message of Deuteronomy in a nutshell. God loves His children, and His children are to love Him. This morning, we're continuing our study through Moses' second speech in the book of Deuteronomy. So we've already made it through the first one. Now we're in the second speech. It's the longest speech from Moses in this book. It's the middle speech. And really, in his first speech, Moses has urged his hearers to obey God's commands and go in and take this land that God is giving him. But... What should they do once they're in the land? How should they live? What are the commands that they are to obey? Well, that's the second speech. That's what the second speech in this book of Deuteronomy is about. After a historical prologue at the end of chapter 4, the second speech from Moses begins in chapter 5 and extends all the way through chapter 28, verse 68. Moses' purpose in this second speech is to call the people of Israel to remember God's law, to live according to it, and in doing so, display His love to the world. 
In chapter 5, Moses has laid down God's law of love, which we commonly call the Ten Commandments. And nearly everything that Moses says going forward in this second speech is in some way or another related to the Ten Commandments. Some scholars view the subsequent chapters of Deuteronomy as expositions of each of the Ten Commandments. What Moses is doing, these scholars suggest, is explaining the, the full implications of these commands for life in the land. That's why we get these different kind of case laws. There are different applications or implications from one or more of the commandments. And this, this, I think, may very well be right. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, fits neatly with the exclusive claim of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Take a look at those verses real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. There we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, we'll need to think more deeply about these verses in just a few minutes, but what we should not fail to notice about them now is that the existence of the one God requires that His people have one overriding love, Him. You see, Deuteronomy 5 closed with Moses reminding the people of Israel that they promised to love God. They promised to keep His law of love. And Deuteronomy chapter 6 opens with Moses commanding the people of Israel to love God. Moses commands them to do the very thing they promised to do. Moses calls the people of Israel to be devoted to the love of God. To be on guard against their love being diverted away from God. And to diligently teach subsequent generations why they should love God. So if I had to summarize the thrust of Deuteronomy chapter 6 in a single sentence, I think that I would just use the words of verse 5 there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's going to be the point of this sermon this morning. Loving God this way will keep us from being led astray to lesser loves. And loving God in this way will lead us to diligently teach others about His great love. If you're taking notes this morning, these three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Devoted love. Diverted love. And diligent love. Let's begin with our first point. Devoted love. Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's read verses 1 to 9 now. Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the lands to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long, hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These verses contain some of the most famous and important words for the ancient people of God. Notice how they begin. They begin with Moses acknowledging that he is but a servant. See, he's only doing what God commanded him to do. He is teaching because he has been told to teach. And what is he teaching? He is teaching, you see there, the commandment, the statutes and rules, as he says there in verse 1. By this, Moses is simply referring to the entire law that God gave the people of Israel on Mount Sinai 40 years ago. Remember, the word Deuteronomy means second law. And what Moses is doing in this book is once again reminding God's people of God's law as they prepare to enter God's land. Moses is giving God's law a second time so that they may do God's law. You see that there in verse 1? And Keep all of his statutes. You see that there in verse 2. You see, God didn't just give his law to his people to admire. As pretty as those two stone tablets must have been. What God really wanted 
was for his law to move from those stones and take on flesh and be embodied in the lives of his people. That's why Moses calls the people of Israel to hear and to be careful to do in verse 3. See, doctrine is for life. In the words of James chapter 1, verse 22, God wants his people not only to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And we've got to be careful here because sometimes we wrongly emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. We need both hearing and doing, don't we? We only know what to do because we've heard what we're supposed to do. That is what it means to fear, to revere the Lord. You see that there in verse 2? This is what reverence of God looks like. So esteeming His character and His commands, so rightly recognizing Him as our Creator and our Redeemer, that we love to hear Him and find joy in obeying Him. Piling up all these commands to actions, hear, keep, do, in response to God's Word, is a call to express one's devotion or dedication to God. What is more, Moses reminds his hearers that with obedience comes blessing. Moses reminds the people of Israel of what God promised and what he will do. God will continue to multiply and grow their nation. And he will give them a rich and beautiful land. They will be fruitful in more ways than one. It's at this point that we get those famous words of verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 in particular is known as the Shema. The Shema in Hebrew simply means to hear. But the phrase, the Shema, it really stands as a summary for what follows in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 has been famously difficult to translate. You can just take a look down in the footnotes of your Bible coming off that verse. And you can probably see the ESV or your, your translation. The ESV certainly offers a couple of different translation possibilities. And while this phrase or this, these couple of verses may be difficult to translate, most Hebrew scholars are agreed on what they communicate. Uh, it is this... this this is a confession of faith. A confession, really, that God is unique. That there is no God like Yahweh. And so the people of Israel are to be devoted to Him alone. This call to hear the one true God was utterly astounding in the ancient Near East. There was only one God who spoke to His people. Yahweh. And in His speaking, He graciously and generously reveals His character, His purposes, His plans, and His love for His people. It is because God speaks that we have knowledge of Him. You know that, right? The only reason we have knowledge of God is because He has spoken to us and revealed His character to us. All of our knowledge of Him is contingent and dependent upon what He has revealed. Here he is revealing through Moses that he is the sovereign and supreme God. He is God alone. And this confession served multiple purposes in ancient Israel. For one, it was a polemic against the pantheon of gods who were worshipped in the land of Canaan, the, the land that the people of Israel were going into. The gods that the people of Israel uh, were, were going to be confronting when they entered the land, they needed to be careful to avoid. This confession Hearken back to Yahweh's exaltation of his power and might over the gods of Egypt. You know, each of those ten plagues in the Exodus was an attack on the ancient gods of Egypt. This was a confession which taught Israel about her past and her present. This confession was a reminder that Yahweh wasn't one among many. Rather, he was the one and only. It is true that Yahweh is not merely unique, but that he's also unified. See there, that might actually be part of the implication of the phrase, the Lord is one, in our verse. As Christians, we are monotheists. One of the early charges against Christianity was that we were polytheists, that we worship more than one God. But that's not what the Bible or Christianity teaches. We believe that there is but one living and true God. We also believe that there are three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, same in essence, equal in power and glory. And executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. We worship and serve one God, the triune God. And while all of this is true, and may be implied in that phrase, the Lord is one, the immediate focus, I hope you see there, is actually on um, the complete and total devotion to God. The follow-on of, verses five, of verse 5 makes that clear. The repeated word all underscores the call to total devotion to God. This is a confession concerning God's uniqueness, and it is a commitment to a certain kind of conduct. 
If there really is only one God, and there really is only one God, then he deserves all that we have and all that we are. With Moses' call for the people of Israel to hear him, and you'll note that this is the second time in two verses that Moses said, listen to me, or hear. That means that what he is saying is really, really important. We repeat the things that are important, don't we? What we have here is a dramatic call and a dramatic confession. Listen to me. This is the heart of your faith, Israel. There is only one God, and he is our God. So be devoted to the kind of life that displays he is the only God. Christian, this is our confession too. There is only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship and serve Him only. He is our God. In reading this, particularly with verse 4, I think that we can sometimes skip over that little three-letter word, our, O-U-R. This was not only to be Israel's kind of corporate confession as a people, but this was to be each individual Israelite's personal confession as well. Doesn't it make good sense of verse 6 and the idea that these words are to be on their hearts and that they're to be taught in their homes, verses 7 and 9? This is a truth that the people of Israel are to, are to internalize. It's hard to imagine how these words will be on our hearts if we don't believe that Yahweh, the only God, is our God. That truth has to be buried in our hearts. Why would we love Yahweh? Why would we love the only God with all, all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our might, if He is not our God, our Creator, our Rescuer, our Redeemer? Christian, would you believe that Yahweh is your God? When Jesus was asked, what was the most important commandment? He said that this was it. We read Jesus' affirmation of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, earlier in the service from Luke's Gospel. You can find it in Matthew and Mark's Gospel, too. This is what God, what Jesus wants from us. He wants our love. He wants our total devotion. He commands it. Unless the people of Israel took the truth of verse 4 to heart, they would not live verse 5 or 6. And the truth of God would not pervade their whole lives as we see it doing in verses 7 to 9. The idea here is that this truth about God is to be passed down to subsequent generations. And that the children of Israel are to be taught that Yahweh is God and God alone. Everywhere, at every time, every day. The children of Israel are to be taught this truth about God from the moment they open their eyes until they close them and fall asleep. If the truth about God is not on our hearts, then it will not be on our lips. Isn't that the paradigm that Jesus put forward when he says, out of the overflow of our hearts, the mouth speaks. If this truth about God is not on our hearts, it will not be on our lips. So how do we get it into our hearts? Well, I would suggest to you that faith comes by hearing, as Paul says in Romans 10, 17. If you want to speak the truth about God to your kids or your co-workers, to your neighbors, your family, your friends, then you have to hear Him. You have to hear God speak the truth to you first. Now, this happens through our corporate gatherings here as a church family. It also happens in your own individual Bible reading throughout the week. Keep listening, keep hearing, keep gathering to hear God's Word proclaimed. And keep opening your Bibles and reading them. That's how we hear God. Through his word. You know, many moms and dads in this congregation will know that this is the text I read when I come to the hospital or your home after you've just had a baby. Uh, I'll read Deuteronomy chapter 6, particularly verses 4 to 9, and then pray. And I wonder if you remember how, where I, I begin my prayer. Um, do you remember who I pray for first? I normally pray for the parents, not the new baby. I'll, I'll eventually get to praying for your baby, but I'll pray for the parents first. I'll pray that your life may be so filled with the love of God, love of God, that your lips are filled with the truth about Jesus. I'll pray that you'd share Jesus with your kids when you're walking in the park, when you're driving to church, 
and going grocery shopping. The truth about God was to be a part of the fabric of life for the people of Israel. And that's what I'm trying to pray when I'm offering that prayer for you. For Israel, discussing the truth about God was to be the norm in their homes. How much more should it be the norm in our homes? Especially now since the love of God has come into full bloom in Jesus Christ. The truth about Jesus should be part of the fabric of our lives. Do we talk about Jesus regularly or rarely? Do we talk about Jesus when our kids are are just in trouble? Or when they've maybe triumphed in love and displaying love to others? Do we talk about Jesus just because we love him and want to talk about him? We talk about the things that we love, don't we? You know, we can talk to our kids about Jesus whenever we want. We can initiate those conversations. They don't have to be prompted by conflict or by something worthy of commendation. And the only way that happens is by your heart being captivated by Him and His love. Which means you've got to hear Him speak. Brothers and sisters, He speaks His word of love to us here. Let us listen to Him. He tells us He loves us in spite of our sins. He tells us that He loves us so much He's not going to leave us where we are. And He's going to grow us and shape us. You'll notice there in verses 8 and 9 that Moses tells the people of Israel that they're to have the truth of God in their hands, on their heads, and written on their homes. The truth of God was to be everywhere, hands, heads, and homes. The truth about God was to be everywhere. And what Moses is saying to the people of Israel, they need to be thinking, making a a conscious effort to remember their God in every place and space. Their, their love of God was to come out in every sphere and arena of life. This is what it looked like to be devoted to the love of God. And still, danger, danger lay ahead for the children of Israel. Though they may purpose to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, the truth is, is that their love was in danger of being diverted. That's what we turn to consider next in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verses 10 to 19. This is our second point. Diverted love. Follow along as I read verses 10 to 19. Verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat... And are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall serve him, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you. And he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. And that, may, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Deuteronomy is constantly looking forward. It's constantly oriented toward the future. You'll notice that there in verse 10. There Moses reminds the children of that they're going into the, to enter the land that, the, that God promised to give to the patriarchs. Promised Abraham he'd give him a good land. Moses is telling God is keeping his promises to us. Moses is reminding his hearers, those who he's preaching to, that God is faithful to keep his promises. Notice how he puts it in verse 10. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, Moses says. This land is guaranteed. This land is also a gift. I hope you picked up on this as we were reading. To put it in the terms of home buying these days, this land was move-in ready, right? 
Uh, verses 10 and, 11, 10 and 11, they tell us that the land is going to have great and good cities that they don't have to build. It's going to have houses full of good things. It's going to have cisterns that they didn't have to dig already for use. It will have vineyards and olive trees that they don't have to plant. This land is ready for living. God is giving his people a good and generous gift. But there's a danger, Moses says. Really, God says through Moses. The love of the children of Israel is in danger of being diverted. The fat of the land can lead to forgetting the Lord who gave the land. Or as one Christian put it, fullness can lead to forgetfulness. That's how verse 11 ends, right? When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. See, bounty and blessing are a test. Prosperity, wealth, and good health are a test of our faith. They can test whether or not we trust in the Lord or if we trust in what God has generously given. Bounty and blessing are not the problem. We are. Our hearts are prone to wander. You know this is true, don't you? When things are going well, how often do our hearts sing, I need thee every hour? So how do we fight forgetfulness? What's the antidote for forgetfulness? Well, Moses tells us there in verses 12 and 13. We fight forgetfulness through grace and gratitude. In verse 12, Moses reminds the people of Israel that God graciously rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And then in verse 13, Moses calls the people of Israel to serve the Lord. Why do we serve God? Because we're grateful for His grace. Now that word serve in verse 13 is actually the same word for slave in verse 12. So you see what Moses is doing rhetorically? He's saying to his hearers, listen, the antidote to forgetting is remembering that you were slaves in Egypt and now by grace you're slaves to God, the God who has set you free. You're now no longer slaves under the grueling taskmaster of Egypt. Now you're slaves to the God who gives you a land with great and good cities, with cisterns and, and vineyards and houses full, a, a land flowing with milk and honey. You're a slave to a God who's generous and good. So serve the Lord with fear, with gratitude for His grace. You see, fullness can lead to an inward focus. Uh, it can lead to cultivating greater fullness for your own pleasure. But what Moses is calling for here are hearts and minds that are turned outward. Hearts and minds which express gratitude for God's grace. And we have to be proactive about this too. Moses tells the people of Israel on the front end, right, to take care. Isn't it kind of our God to warn us of danger? Doesn't he love us? Well, be mindful of this temptation to have your love diverted. Remember that these are gifts from God, so give thanks to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, you're no longer a slave to sin. You don't serve that master anymore. You're a slave to Christ. Build gratitude for God's grace into your life. When God gives you a bed to sleep in, give thanks. When he gives you a job to work, give thanks to him. When God puts food on your table and fills your stomach, give thanks. Personally, I've got to do a better job of this in my own heart and life. Leading my family in a rote prayer around the dinner table is not a good way to cultivate gratitude for God's generosity and grace. I don't know about you, but come dinner time, I am hungry. And for some reason, when I'm hungry, I'm quite good at being precise and concise. I like my food hot, and I'd rather it be in my stomach than on my plate. But praying over a meal is a wonderful opportunity built into the rhythm of the day where I can meaningfully give thanks for God's grace. And that's what I need to do. So I need to pause. I need to slow down and give heartfelt, meaningful thanks to God. You know, there are other ways where we can remember God's grace and give thanks to. 
ways we can cultivate gratitude. Perhaps you can take a calendar. Yes, one of those old-fashioned things that are made of paper that you can hang on a wall that have these squares with dates in them. Take a calendar, and at the end of each day, write in that calendar something to give thanks to God for. And at the end of the month, step back and see how God has filled your days with His generous gifts. This is one of the questions I ask my kids when I tuck them in at night. What's something you want to give thanks to God for today? What, what a wonderful day to, what a wonderful way to conclude our days by remembering what God has done for us and how He's been generous to us in Jesus Christ, how He's sustained us throughout the day. Gratitude for God's grace is one way which we can guard against our love being diverted from the Creator to His creation. There's something else we've got to be careful about here, too. Another danger. There's a danger of treating God's good gifts as garbage. That's how one Christian author put it. The answer to the danger of fullness leading to forgetfulness is not to reject God's gifts. It's not to reject these cities, these cisterns, and these culinary delights that God is giving His people. The answer is not to treat God's gifts as garbage. The people of Israel shouldn't bulldoze the houses. They shouldn't break the cisterns or burn the vineyards. That's not the answer. No, in fact, that would be to treat as evil what God has given as good. If you've been blessed with wealth and and good health, you should not feel guilty and pursue some kind of ascetic or austere lifestyle, purging yourself or your home of God's good gifts. The answer is not to treat God's good gifts as garbage. No, the answer is to be grateful for God's gifts of grace and share them with others. God has given gifts to you so that you can give gifts to others and so display His generous love. God has been generous to you so you can be generous to others. And as you give, I pray and trust you remember what you've been given in Jesus Christ. Moses, he mentions another love-diverting danger there in verse 14. You see the little g-gods of Canaan. They're a danger. After the people of Israel had gone in and conquered the land and settled, temptations would remain. The people of Canaan were notorious for their idolatry and particularly their fertility cults. Here, the central confession of verses 4 and 5 ought to come flooding back into our minds. Remembering that there is only one God ought to lead the people of Israel to rejecting all other gods. Their history and their experience should lead them to reject all other gods. The people of Israel must guard against their love being diverted away from the one true God. I don't know about you, but but I find verse 15 astounding, awe-inspiring even. Moses proclaims God's presence and his passion. You see these words there, for the Lord your God in your midst presence is a jealous God, passion. Is it not incredible that the holy God dwells with sinful people? Christian, can you believe it? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Christ, dwells within you. God goes with you wherever you go. Isn't that love? I mean, we want to be with those we love. And our God wants to be with us and is with us. Are you not amazed that God wants to be with people like us? Are you not amazed that God wants to be with you and is with you. On top of this, is it not incredible that God is jealous for our love? He doesn't want to share it with others. God is like an enraged husband who comes home to find his wife in bed with another lover. He is jealous. And love is not love unless it's jealous. God's Love for us is jealous. He loves His people. He loves us with a a jealous love, an exclusive love, and we are to love Him with an exclusive love. And here Moses is telling the people of Israel, if they give their love to other gods, the gods of other nations, God will give their land to other nations. There's one final danger here. It's found there in verse 16. Moses warns the people of Israel not to test God, as they did at Massa. You see, God may test us with bounty and blessing, 
but we may not test him. Now, what Moses is referring to here is something that happened back in Exodus chapter 17. You can read about it this afternoon. After God had rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he was leading them through the wilderness and, and, and they got thirsty, as happens in a wilderness. But the people of Israel, they started to grumble and complain. And what Moses is telling us here is that the people of Israel tested God. And by that, he means that the people of Israel demanded that God prove his love for them. You see, difficulty can divert our love from God. Difficulty can divert our love for God. Suffering can tempt us to test God, to, to call into question his love for us. Tests. They can draw out what's really inside of us, can't they? So if you sat down for a, a test, a, a math exam, and you were asked, what is the quadratic equation? What you write on that piece of paper will prove whether or not you know the quadratic equation. That'll come out. Tests prove what is inside of us. The people of Israel at Massa tested God. They wanted Him to prove their love for Him. Proved. Their hearts were questioning God. They were in the wilderness, they were thirsty, and they thought, this is proof, our, our experience is proof that God doesn't love us. We need some evidence of your love, God. Give us water. And of course, God had already proven his love for him, for them, hadn't he? He, he saved them from slavery in Egypt, didn't he? he? He proved his love for them by multiplying them and rescuing them. Could, could difficulty actually be evidence of God's love for us? I mean, maybe he's softening us where we are hard. Maybe he's strengthening us where we are weak. Maybe, just maybe he wounds us to heal us. How often do we do, do, we do the same thing that the people of Israel did? How often do we say, God, I, I don't like where you've led me. It's difficult. It's hard. I need some sign of reassurance of your love. Brothers and sisters, the sign of God's love for us is Jesus' resurrection from the grave. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, 32, If God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? One way of diverting our love one way of, of diverting our love away from God is by taking an adversarial stance toward Him and thereby demanding that He prove His love for us. That's to turn our relationship with God on its head. He has demonstrated His love for us. And now we are called to demonstrate our love for Him. That's essentially what Moses is communicating there in verses 17 to 19. Once again, Moses returns to his exhortation to display devoted love for God through keeping his commandments. You see, the positive practice of God's law is yet another way that we take care not to have our love for God diverted. When we remember that God's law of love is the path of righteousness, and we purposefully walk in his law of love, our love remains fixed and focused. It remains guided in the right way. And what Moses says here is not all that different from what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, when he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If we were to, to keep reading this unfolding story of God's love in the Bible, we would find that Israel's love, these people that we're reading about here, their love was, in fact, diverted. Fullness did lead to forgetfulness. The people of Israel allowed the gods of Canaan to remain in their land after the conquest. And they did not keep the commandments of the Lord. God became jealous and he did as he promised. He, he removed the people of Israel from the land. He did the very same thing that he did in the very beginning of the Bible when Adam and Eve disobeyed his voice, his command, and failed to hear and obey. Because of their sin, both Adam and Israel, God thrust them out from the good land that he had given them. God removed them from His presence, and yet God promised both Adam and Israel that He would overcome their sin. He promised that He would send a son, a king, to save His people from their sins, so that they would be His people and dwell with Him forever. 
Friends, this is what he has done in Jesus. God has made us, he has made us and called us and commanded us to love, to love him. And like Adam and Israel, we've become distracted by the goodness of God's creation. And our love has been diverted from the creator. We've loved money and material things. We've loved people more than the God who made them. We've rebelled against God, questioning his power and love for us. This, the Bible reveals to us, is sin. And the punishment for our sin mirrors, on an eternal scale, the punishment that's spoken of there in verse 15. Sin against the eternal God deserves an eternal punishment. And yet God's love for sinners, like you and me, was never diverted. He did not ditch his rescue plan. He maintained his plan to save his people. He remained devoted to his promises. And so he sent his son. Jesus lived a life of perfect love to God the Father. He never abused God's good gifts. He enjoyed wedding banquets, eating to the full and giving thanks to God the Father. Jesus never worshipped the gods of the nations. He always loved and worshipped his heavenly Father. Jesus never tested God. Instead, he trusted God. Even when he was in the midst of his greatest difficulty, hanging on the cross, dying in the place of sinners, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He asked that question. And then he expressed his trust in God by saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, he entrusted himself to God. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect in all the ways that we are imperfect. His love was always true, never diverted, always directed to the Father. And that is why God raised him from the dead three days after his death on the cross in the place of sinners. God vindicated Jesus and his righteous display of love. And now our God calls us to trust in Jesus for our salvation, to direct our love to him. This is how we are saved, by turning from our sin and by trusting in Jesus. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you know that you've been captivated by the good gifts that God has given us in this world. If you're captivated, you've been captivated by the gods of this world, the gods of money and sex and power and food and self, then I want to invite you to come and worship the Lord our God, the only God. The one God. Come and worship the Lord Jesus Christ who died and was raised for the forgiveness of sin. Turn from your sin and trust in Him. If we have truly come to love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, then how shall we live? Well, the closing verses of this chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 to 25, they point us in the right direction. They show us diligent love on display. This is our third point, diligent love. You recall that in verse 7 of this chapter, Moses instructed parents to teach their children diligently about God's love. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 to 25, they envision that diligent instruction. So follow along as I read verses 20 to 25. Verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that the Lord swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these things. He commanded us to do all these, forgive me, I lost my place. He commanded us to do all these, uh, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all his commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. These verses, they, can, they, they envision a conversation occurring between children and parents in Israel. This is such a natural conversation to occur within a home, isn't it? Children ask their parents questions. They ask them all the time. They ask the famous why question, right? 
And, and let me just speak to the children of our congregation, children, youth, and young adults. Um, I want to encourage you to keep asking that question. To keep asking that why question. Ask why. It's an important question. It needs to be asked. And if your parents express exasperation, uh, if they seem bothered because you've asked them why, they're wrong for doing so. Be patient with them. Pray for them. And ask them why again. You should ask your parents the very questions that the children of Israel ask their parents. They basically ask this, Dad and Mom, why do we do these things? Why do we rest on the Sabbath? Why do we gather with God's people for worship? Why do we practice these sacrifices? Why do we keep these laws? Why are these things important? Uh, children, youth, young adults, you too should ask your parents questions like this. Uh, you should ask questions like, why do we go to church on Sunday? Why does Pastor Mike push people underwater? Why? Why do you eat bread and drink just a little cup of, of juice? Why do we read the Bible in the evenings together? Why do we pray before our meals? Why are, are there sermons in church? Why do we sing? What's the point of all of this? Why are these things important to you? And, and what do they mean? Ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And parents, moms and dads, I want to encourage you to be cultivating an environment where your children can ask questions unafraid. Now, here's the thing. that The children in Israel were only going to ask these questions if their parents were actually devoted to diligently loving the Lord, diligently keeping His commands, as verse 17 says. I suspect that that is how our children will come to ask questions like these. In fact, we can even extend it beyond the home. I think this is probably how our neighbors, our, our co-workers, our family and friends will come to ask questions like these. It should be through the contrast of our lives with the world around us. It should be through seeing uh, others seeing our diligent love for the Lord Jesus that they would be prompted to ask questions like these. Will our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends see that we're, we're not really at home in this world? We're not at peace with this world. Will they see a difference? Now, perhaps you think it's unfair that Moses gave the parents in Israel a pre-scripted answer. Right? I mean, he, he gives them their answer in verses 21 to 25, doesn't he? Moses' answer is instructed. In answer to the question, why do we keep God's law? Why do we do these things? Moses tells the parents uh, in Israel, he gives them kind of three parts to this, this answer. To this question, Moses tells the parents of Israel to answer first by recounting history, particularly by recounting redemptive history. You'll recall that when we studied the Ten Commandments, uh, this was how the Ten Commandments began, with a reminder of God's saving and delivering love. The first part of the answer then is this. God's people keep God's law not to be saved, but because they have been saved. God's people keep God's law not to be saved, but because they have been saved. The Exodus, God's rescue of Israel from slavery, was a saving event. This is how free people live. This is how those who have been loved by God show love back to God. First part of the answer is history. The second part of Moses' answer to this question is this. Because God said. Children really dislike uh, the answer, because I said. Uh, around my, my home, we jokingly call it the because. Because. Uh, it's an unsatisfying answer. But when God is God, that answer, because God said, is actually a legitimate answer. It's not an arbitrary answer either. Because what God said is an expression of His righteousness. God's law is an expression of His righteous conduct and right conduct. The third part of Moses' answer to the question is this. Because it's for our good and God's glory. It's an expression of loving trust. Trust that God knows what is best for us because He's made us and saved us. He knows how we ought to live. Verse 25 is not about expressing righteousness in the hopes of earning salvation. No, salvation was already accomplished by God in the Exodus. Verse 25 is about expressing the righteousness of God back to Him through the keeping of His law. As I said just a minute ago, this is a pretty scripted answer. 
Do you want a, a scripted answer for some things? Uh, try learning and memorizing a catechism. Catechism is a series of questions and answers used to methodically teach the basics of the Christian faith. And I'd heartily commend to you the Baptist Catechism of 1813 as published by the Charleston Association. Uh, catechisms are a bit of a hobby horse of mine, so I'll, I'll refrain from climbing up on it now. But what we should take away from this example is that we need to diligently prepare and be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have within. How will you answer your kids or your coworkers? How will you answer a young believer when they are struggling and wandering in weariness? Are we ready to answer like the people of Israel were? Are we ready to point back to the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross and say, because He shed His precious blood for me, I live in love for Him. The only way that we're going to be ready to give an answer is if we are diligently pursuing the love of the Lord Jesus and delighting in His saving works and keeping His loving commands. We should conclude. Can we be commanded to love? As it turns out, the answer is yes. Deuteronomy 6 reveals that God doesn't merely command us to love Him. No, He commands us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What Deuteronomy 6 also teaches us is that our love is a response to God's love. God calls His people to love Him with unwavering devotion and diligence as a response to His love displayed in His keeping of His promises to Abraham, His power displayed in Israel's rescue from Egypt, and His provision of leading Israel through the wilderness and into the promised land of Canaan. What is more, all of that history was preparation for how God would so display His love for His people in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the one who has come to set the captives free. Jesus is even now leading His people through the wilderness of this world and home to the promised land of heaven. Jesus has loved us with all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it is our high privilege to love Him just the same. Would you join me in prayer?